Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the 99%. My name is Jesse Vondercheck, coach at Top Step Training, and I'm joined by Marilyn. Hey, Marilyn. Hey, team. How's it going? Um, Marilyn Chicota. You can find everything with me at mcc.coach. Super happy to be here with you, Jesse. Um, yeah, and first of all, we need to start with a big congratulations. I'll let you tell everyone the news. Oh, yeah, this Canadian did her American citizenship. <laughs> I got a lot of yays and I got a few uh, what the hells from some of my fellow Canadians. But you know what? I've lived here a long time and this is home. And so I figured it was time for sure. Well, we are glad to have you. So, you know, welcome aboard officially. Um, I don't know if it comes with like a giant gun or a truck or anything, but you know, it's probably in your future, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> That's why I said, I said, am I allowed to talk loudly on my cell phone in the quiet public place now? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. On speaker, right. You got to turn on, on speaker. speaker. FaceTime on FaceTime. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sorry. FaceTime. Um, yeah. You have to start picking up a lot of habits, but uh, you got a few to work on right there. Right. Um, what else is going on with you? How's training going? It has been, you know what, heat is cumulative. We've talked about the heat before and, you know, Tucson this year, I know the whole country has been really hot. I think it's been really crazy hot all over the world, to be honest. Um, maybe not where, maybe not where you are, but it's been really hot <laughs> in the U.S. And Tucson, it's always a hot summer, but we've had, I don't know how many consecutive days over a hundred, but every day it's been 105, 113, 115. That heat is cumulative. And it's the early mornings that are cumulative. So it's um, August and a lot of weeks of that. And, you know, we're all just kind of hanging in there on terms of training and recovery because you you got to pull it back just a little, even if you want to. That's always my big question. Can you really get fit in really hot places like this? And I think it's still to be determined because it kicks your butt so much. And it's just on like one or two weeks of it, right? Like if people who pop in and out for a week or two and then they go away to like Colorado or something and they're all perky and they don't understand. They're like, Oh, the heat is fine. I'm like, spend eight weeks here every day, getting up at, you know, four o'clock in the morning and just getting drained by the heat and that amount of sweating. And then, you know, I think eventually you have to start to pull back just a little either on the intensity or the volume overall, cause you're, you're getting pretty smoked. And so whether, whether you're actually able to get as fit as you need to be being in this kind of environment, I still, I think that that question's still on the table in my mind. So, so my training's been okay. It's been, I've had to pull back quite a, quite a few things that I thought I might do in a day and just been like, you know what, I'm smoked. I gotta, I can't. And uh, you gotta just pull back when you need to, when it's, when it's hot like this. So I'm still fit and it's good, but yeah, that's that's where I'm at right now. How about you, Jesse? You're in you're in lovely weather. So, <laughs> uh, well, yeah, good job on being smart and not totally destroying yourself because that's definitely easy to do in uh, in weather like that when you're yeah, dealing with it all the time. Um, but yeah, for me, I you know I I don't want to dwell on my weather too much because it is pretty perfect over here right now. Um, we got lots of daylight still, and yeah, I think the high today was like 75. So. Nice. Um, so yeah, not, not too bad. We're going to get a little bit more warmer weather, but I still think the high is going to be like 88 or something coming up and everyone's kind of like worried about that heat. So, so yeah, it's hard for me to complain about the weather here right now. What about your training though? Um, well, so I took a pretty fun little like 10 day trip and didn't do as much training the last 10 days as I would have liked, but got to see some cool places. Um, went to Italy and actually was near the the race course for Ironman Italy. So got to do a little spin around some of the roads out there. Uh, oh. went to Croatia and yeah, I got Those to swim photos in looked amazing. The, the skinny, the, the skinniest, if people haven't checked out um, <laughs> the Instagram, the gram there, there's the, what is it? The narrowest street in the world. I was like, that's so cool. Yeah. Yeah. Fun fact. Well, we went to the narrowest street in the world and uh, that was, it was pretty cool. It was actually the one day it was pouring rain. So we were like, well, let's drive to this city. And, and uh, I'd gone for a ride that morning and I was climbing this mountain and I was like, those clouds, they'll probably like go away and this will be fine. And I keep going up the mountain and then all of a sudden it just starts pouring, but like monsoon pouring and it's like thundering and lightning. And I'm on this dirt road. That's like 12%. Um, on my road bike. Cause I'm, oh, I'm smart. <laughs> yeah. 
so I'm like bombing down this dirt road and there's like, there's gravel or like gravel rivers forming next to me. And I get down to the bottom and I like hit this pothole with my rear wheel and I'm skidding across the road that has like three inches of water on it. And I just cut off like two lanes of traffic. Cause I was like, there's nothing I can do. I'm skidding through this intersection right now. Um, <laughs> But made it home, um, didn't get struck by lightning, didn't get hit by a car. So that was a win. Uh, and we're like, what do we do this afternoon? So we drove to this island through the pouring rain. And then we got there and the sun came out and we walked around the city and explored the narrowest street in the world. Wow, that's crazy. That's a great story. <laughs> I'm glad you yeah. didn't get smacked by a car. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was pretty nervous, but I have to say the drivers in Croatia were extremely understanding to me not knowing where I was going and also uh, riding in the rain, which probably wasn't the best rain to be riding in. Um, but yeah, I, now I'm back. I'm oh, sorry, go ahead. I was gonna say, and one more really important question around that, how's your German coming? Oh my gosh, it's horrible. I am, <laughs> I, you know, on our trip, I just gave up because we were, we were in Italy for a while and then, yeah, we were in Croatia and like everyone, no one was speaking German anymore. And I was just like, this is, I'm, I was going nowhere anyways, but now I just spent two weeks going backwards. Um, <laughs> but I, I'm still trying. I'm back in the horse now that we're back in Switzerland and people are actually speaking German to me. So I'm working on it again. Um, and yeah, back training with, uh, with the Wildcats again this week. Did a track workout right before this podcast, which was good to get back to some, some fast running. Um, good to be back with the Wildcats, you know, feels like home. Yeah, um, that's super cool. Tell me, tell us a little bit about that. What's that? What's that? I saw you post some photos about it. You haven't talked about it a whole lot. What's the, what is it? And what's the major differences between the Arizona Wildcats and your Switzerland Wildcats? Sorry, I, I forgot that I maybe haven't talked about the Wildcats yet on here. Um, so this is, so club, club sports in, um, in Europe in general are kind of like where it's at, like kind of like club swimming is in the U.S., but we tend to have like school sports that are pretty good it seems like the school sports here are all mediocre at best and all the good athletes do club sports. And so triathlon is a club sport in a lot of cities and in Basel, there's a couple of clubs. And so I've started working with as a coach and jumping into the workouts when I can, um, a, a club team called the wildcats and they have age group, um, as young as eight and then all the way up to, uh, people like, you know, that are just in normal age groups, like whatever, 40 to 45, 45, 49 racing Ironman. And then, but the main focus I would say is like the short course program. They've got a lot of kids that are in the development program, like U23 stuff, and then going, moving into um, like WTC racing and, and yeah, some kids in that vein, there's a couple of kids that have a pro card, a couple of kids on like the Swiss national team. And, and so, yeah, it's kind of fun. Uh, you know, today I got to jump in their track workout where we did a bunch of 600s and I'm getting pulled around by, by some, some pretty quick Swiss kids that are, could probably be, uh, my, my son as far as how old they are, but they're, uh, they're pulling me around the track. So, so yeah. That's awesome. That's very cool. Very cool. Good exposure to some different, different, uh, culture and different approaches too, I'm sure. Totally. Yeah. I'm working under, uh, this, this guy, Cam, and he's a, he's a great coach. He's actually a Kiwi. And so yeah, I get to learn a lot from him, which is super fun. And we learned that there's a tie there. How small is this world? That this Cam guy actually was coached by Scott Molina, who everybody knows was my coach. And you're like, hey, one degree of separation <laughs> here. <laughs> How fun is that? Yeah, yeah, it's super cool. And yeah, he talked about epic camps. And so, so yeah, the philosophy, even though it's, it's a world away, isn't actually that much different than a lot of the things I'm, I've been exposed to, which is, which is cool, but you know, with a little bit of a twist and it's always nice to see other people's twists on things. Very cool. Um, so today, uh, you know, I wanted to chat about the, the men's world championship coming up in Nice and kind of one of the things that made me think about talking about this is, well, the course is really unique. But one of the things we saw over the weekend was a lot of the European racers that went to Milwaukee to go to the PTO champs. We saw them not perform to their best kind of racing in America with the travel and on a course that wasn't familiar to them. And so I thought maybe we could talk about the course in Nice, what makes it so unique, and then how people can prepare for that race in America in order to 
to execute well and kind of how to get from wherever their fitness is now to what they need to think about in the training and then how they need to structure that in, in order to actually get to race day and be able to execute, which is a, the thing I saw happen to some of the Europeans that went to Milwaukee where they maybe they were trained for the course, but they just couldn't execute because of how they kind of structured their training with the travel and everything else. So a few different things to talk about as far as like course training, and then how do you actually get there in order to execute well on race day? Yeah, really, really good, good topic. I think, you know, the 70 point, it was 70.3 worlds. What year was it was in Nice? It was a number of years back now. Um, it was, uh, they, they, I'm bad with dates. Sorry. No, me too. And, yeah, they used parts of the course and you could see the different dynamic. Everyone knew it was going to unfold really much different than if the race was on a more, tra- I guess, if you want to call it more traditional type course, it's just, it is really quite a different course for a world championship. So it'll be, be interesting. It'll be suited to a very specific type of racer, that course, I think. Uh, you know, I know Hawaii, it's like really specific towards being able to be good in the heat. And there's things there that haven't allowed some people to do as well as maybe they, they could, if it was on a different style of course or in different conditions. And I think Nice is going to present similar types of things where it's going to be a specific type of athlete that can do well there. And, um, and knowing, you know, knowing some of the things ahead of time going in, like we're going to talk about will be really helpful for, for anyone racing there. Yeah, and I know there's been a little back and forth about whether or not this is a good thing, and I don't want to dwell on this too much, but I'm excited. I think it provides different people an opportunity to shine, whereas, you know, if you're bad in the heat, then you're probably never going to do great in Kona. So I I think it's it's cool. It's a great opportunity, again, to, like, be able to mix up and and maybe get a person who could never win a world championship in Kona have the potential to win a world championship in Nice. So, yeah, super cool opportunity. Um, and yeah, it'll, it'll be a fun race to watch. And so, yeah, let's, let's get straight into, um, kind of the race and then maybe what things people can think about. And, um, so I've never raced there, but I, I am in Europe now. So I think that gives me a different perspective on, on what it's like in general, but you've had the experience of racing Ironman France, which is like super similar to this course. Yeah, I raced Ironman France uh, quite a few times, actually, and I, I used to race it back when it was in Gerard Mir, and then they moved it to Nice and raced there a few times, and I mean, I just, I, I'm excited as well, because I love, I love racing in France, and I love France in general, and that whole area is just amazing, so for the people just who have never been there, and they're headed there to travel, and maybe taking family with them, and a new destination, it's a pretty it's a, an amazing city. It's a beautiful city, lots to see. And it is absolutely, you know, it's a really, really cool place to go. The, the course itself, you know, it's a saltwater swim an ocean swim still, but so different than Kona, you know, the one, it's a wetsuit and, and it's a warm wetsuit. I remember I used to, I'm pretty sure every time, I think there was only one time that I used a full sleeve wetsuit there. That was just my personal preference because the water's warm, but it is a wetsuit swim and it's a sea swim. So that, that is all like very nice. Um, it's nice that it's warm. It's nice that it's wetsuit. So that could play a dynamic as far as the pack splitting up, you know, won't my, you know, in Hawaii, it's a, it, Hawaii is a pretty hard swim salt water but it's no wetsuit so you know that I think separates people just a little bit more I know that I always had my best fastest swims and closest to the front of the pack in France because it was salt water and it was wetsuit so that really that it's it's nice what I found in terms of the swim the hardest part was it's a beach start and if no one's ever prepared for or done a beach start before, start thinking about that. Because when you get a mix of cultures of Australians, Kiwis, Europeans, South Americans, um, Americans, all these different cultures, all who are the best in the world at a similar uh, level of intensity, and the gun goes off and it's a running beach start, whew, you want to be ready for how aggressive that's going to be and what it's going to feel like when you hit that water. Do you, I'm sure you have some experience in that. 
um, yeah, I, well, I just, you know, a couple of the races, one of the races I did over here was a beach start and I was literally last person in the water. And, you know, I'm like, I'm like, okay at running. I'm not horrible, but I was not ready for just, like you said, how aggressive everyone was on, on the start. And like, just kind of like, you know, I, I was talking to somebody else about this, how there, everyone was really aggressive and I was getting like pushed and shoved and dunked. But then I saw some of these same people later on the course and they were all like smiling and like happy. And there wasn't this, like, I feel like if that happens in America, people kind of hold on to the grudge and they say, Oh man, this guy dunked me and he did it on purpose. And I think the, the European mindset that is just like, well, that's racing. That's just what you do. And you're aggressive. And like, they don't, no one seems to mean anything by it. And it's not like mean or negative, but that's just like, when you get in the water, that's what has to happen. Uh, whether or not it does have to happen. It just, it does seem like that's the mindset. So one thing I would say is to try and like adopt that mindset a little bit, where if you do get dunked or pushed or shoved, you know, you don't want to hold on to that. You don't want to spend the rest of the race, like being angry at some random guy who dunked you because you know, they might not have meant anything at all by it. They just might be trying to go as fast as they can. And honestly, even if they did, it's not going to help you to dwell on it. So I don't know. It was an interesting mindset shift for me where, you know, it just seemed like they're trying to go fast and they're not like worried about anything else. And, and yeah, I feel like Americans especially kind of hold on to that grudge. So yeah, you know, I'd say it's going to be a rough swim and I would just be ready to let it go and, you know, move on with the rest of your day. Um, well, that's the thing is I actually found it to be, like I said, I always had my fastest times there because if you can just blast off the line and get through that initial um, jump into the water and that run and then the first 200 meters where it's just mayhem. And I actually viewed it as like, this is awesome because this is going to get me out there fast. You know, there's so many, so many people and it's moving so fast at the front you know, and you're just, you just like embrace it and kind of protect your head and don't, you know, if you catch a mouthful of water or whatever, you just find some air when you can and just settle in. But once you're out there with everybody or find your pack or your feet, it's, it's a fast swim, that ocean. It wasn't just one year, you know, I raced there a number of times. It was consistently every time that that ocean was just faster than any other swims I ever did. And that always set me up really well, especially into that bike course that then, you know, I was a cyclist. I had to do courses that were really, really tough bike courses. So I was not only in a position where I would have one of my best swims because of that dynamic, the, the salt water, the wetsuit, uh, the aggression at the start, if you can just bear through that, gets you out there fast and gets you out there with people, then that puts you in a really good position when you hop off the bike. I had other peers that I would have this conversation with before it was the world championships about just going to race Ironman France. I said, if you can just, you know, get through that start, you're going to have a great swim. And they thought about it and they thought they got their head wrapped around it. And then a couple of them actually, when they were in it, they ended up DNFing because they panicked and they didn't fully understand how rough it is. So just having this conversation when people start to think about that and prepare for it, maybe do some practicing in the water with like, you know, mass starts with a group of people with your masters and beat each other around and what that feels like, just really have a good understanding for it. And not only is it an attitude shift, but it's just prepare yourself to be able to find those little pockets of air where you tuck your chin down and to the right. And, you know, when you, you don't really necessarily need to sight when you're in that mayhem, just trust that you're moving forward with that group. And if you're getting pushed under, just, you know, hold your breath, blow bubbles out, you will get air and just, just hang in there. And, and then you'll be set up, set up really well for when you hop on your bike. And yeah, let's talk a little bit about the, the saltwater wetsuit combo. Um, because I think that position in the water, you know, it, it puts you up so high. It almost makes it feel like you're kind of sailing on a boat on top of the water. It's, uh, it's, you know, it's, it's a good feeling. It, it, it does feel like you're going fast and you can go fast. And, um, yeah, would you recommend people do anything special in training to get ready to, to feel like that? Because that's hard to emulate in a pool, uh, because you know, you don't like salt water just changes everything. Then you throw a wetsuit on there and you are, you're, you're high in the water, which is, it definitely feels a little bit different. Yeah. I mean, you know, this about me, Jesse, I am, 
I pretty much don't swim without a pool boy. <laughs> and my giant <laughs> pool boy that I Oh, have, yeah, you've got the, the double, the double I stuff got the pool, double boy. pool boy. I'm pretty lower body heavy. I'm built like a weightlifter or a bike rider for sure. And you throw someone who's as dense as me on the lower body in the water, we pretty much just sink. And, um, and that's always been a struggle for me. And one of my coaches many years ago went and made this double pool boy for me to try and get my body position up and take the idea was take more good strokes, um, with good body position and, and feel that, you know, without, without battling the water so that you end up eventually having more consistent, good strokes that, that add up over time. And so I think, and then I would, you know, go to a race like France and it was a very similar feeling to what I was used to. And, and that, you know, that transferred over really well. So the, the piece of advice I would give is if, you know, you've got, you know, some kind of pole boy that is pretty big. Um, I know these, I mean, the whole, I, I think you're, you're under, you're under showing how big you're, I think you need a separate bag when you walk to the pool for just your pole boy. <laughs> this <is> thing. <laughs> it puts the, what is it? The Eni, the Eni one is pretty big. That one's pretty good. The Eni one. Uh, there's a lot of buoyancy in that one, but this is literally, it's like two, two big ones and they're glued together. So it's like, <laughs> yeah, it's like a raft between my legs and it's like, that'll hold her up. Um, <laughs> so, so yeah, I did a lot of swimming with that, which is, you know, not, not great for other swims and I would change that for other swims, but for that one in particular, doing a lot of, you know, high, I think doing a lot of high turnover swimming with a big buoy would be helpful for understanding what that swim is going to feel like because one it's so it's so choppy and it's so much chaos at the start that a long smooth stroke is going to get lost in that chaos as well as the waves once you're out of the crowd and you're uh, with your little group one you're probably always going to be with a bit of a group because you're surrounded by people who are similar to you more so than other races and it's also can be wavy out there. So that real high turnover type stroke with a high body position, I think if you can do a lot of sets with a big buoy, not with paddles, just just um, nothing on your hands and work on real high turnover, then I think that will transfer over well to this type of swim course. Yeah, I think uh, another thing you can do is a combo of like floaty pants and buoy, or if you're not in Tucson and you can wear a wetsuit in the pool, uh, especially if you have like an old like wetsuit, you're not racing it anymore, throwing like a wetsuit and then also throwing a buoy. Um, but yeah, any, anything you can do to kind of like get your body a little bit higher in the water. And, and I think you're right. Like when your body is that high in the water, it's, it's hard to glide. Right. Cause I mean, there's, there's just no water up there anymore. And, and so it does kind of lend itself to that style of stroke. And so, so yeah. And if you have a pull pull buoy, you're going to be turning a little bit or rotating a little bit less. So all that stuff can kind of help you develop that high turnover stroke practicing to be in a pretty elevated position, because especially growing up a swimmer, the first time I did um, an ocean swim with a wetsuit on, I was like, what is this? I I don't know what, uh, am I like in a boat? Like how, how do I swim like this? And I had a bad swim, which I should have, like, like you're saying, I should have gone really fast but it was so foreign to me. So, so I would say like, do some sets where, yeah, you are pretty high in the water and you're kind of thinking about that feel so that when you get in the ocean, um, you, you know, you're at least somewhat used to that. And, and yeah, I do think it is good for, for people to know that it, it could get pretty wavy out there. And so to be prepared for, for dealing with some chop, because, you know, if you're, if you're used to lake swims, that's, that's going to be pretty different. Totally. And this course is too, we're just looking at the map, you know, there's going to be a lot of turns and sighting and those turns are going to be more crowded. I I suspect than what people are used to, because again, when you're at a world championships, people, there's more people the same as you, right? So in other races, when you're, if you're, if you're getting to a point where you're at the world championships, usually you're at the, at the front end of your group. And so possibly you're used to going away from everyone else or being surrounded by only one or two or very small group of people that are the same as you. When you go to world championship events, it's important to remember that there's going to be more people the same speed as you. And so when there's a lot of corners, a lot of turns like this course is, 
and there's more people just like you, I think that those are going to get a little chaotic and to be prepared to, to understand how to turn around a buoy fast and turn around a buoy fast in, in maybe more of a pack than what you're used to. Yeah. And I, I think this is a good skill to practice. I mean, like, you know, I swim in the male pro field and you would think everyone there would be proficient at going around a corner, but the amount of times I see like groups of guys set themselves up on the inside, going into a corner, basically effectively making the corner sharper. And then just coming to a dead stop to try and take that 90 degree turn, where if you just set yourself up a little bit wider and you open up the turn a little bit, then you can just kind of like hit the tangent and go around. And I I've been dropped by groups and then watching them set up for the corner and then just be able to get myself back on just by like taking the corner slightly wider and, and, and yeah, like just kind of swimming the tangent a little bit more appropriately. And I mean, I appreciate it that they're letting me get back on, but I'm also like, what are you guys doing? Like, why are you <laughs> hugging? Why are you hugging the line to then turn right? Like, you know, widen that out a little bit. Um, That's so how yeah, I you feel can about people's descending on bikes, Jesse, and cornering. Yeah, well, yeah. What, what are you guys doing? <laughs> <laughs> that's that's maybe a good segue because that's where we're going next. Um, but but yeah, it is a good thing to practice, and I think you can definitely make up a lot of time on a course with this many corners if you do set yourself up a little wider. I mean, unless you're going to do like the the one stroke backstroke as you're like turning around the corner, that's the only way you can do a, a corner tight like that effectively. Otherwise, you're just going to like accordion your own body and 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 slow down, and then you've got to accelerate again. And accelerating the water is hard, so right. I would set yourself up wide. Nice. Yeah. Um, so, but yeah, good thing to practice. Uh, you know, even if you just set up a few buoys in a pool, or you can set some up in a lake, practice kind of going in and out of them. And a good thing to practice, like you were talking about, with people, so that if you're getting hit, you can still kind of like take try and take that good line and. Yeah, because as we were looking at this course, it's a big V, and it's got a, a lot of turns in it, maybe more than people are used to, and you could definitely gain or lose a lot of time there. But where you can gain or lose more time is going to be on the bike course, and this one is a lot different than any course. Um, and if you've only raced in America, this is going to be very different than anything you've ever seen. Yeah, I used to love it, obviously, being a bike racer and, and the, the ride being my strength. Well, one... I think there's some equipment choices to think about before you go to this course. Uh, I think that, you know, when I used to race on this course, uh, a lot of times I would actually use a road setup with clip-ons and making sure that I had the, instead of the most aero wheels possible, the lightest wheels possible, because you're either climbing or descending. The amount of time that you're actually in your aero bars flat is, is very little. So for me back then, obviously there's equipment choices that are different now, but I would have something that was like a 303 on the front and a 404 or an 808 on the back. Or the other combination that I did a couple times was a 404 on the front and a tri-spoke on the back. And that was arrow and light, uh, but they also climbed really well. So you want to be thinking about, you're not going to be spending a whole lot of time in your arrow bars on the flat. So if you're climbing or descending, make sure you're really comfortable at hitting turns on it. The braking surface, if you're still on rim brakes, is what you're comfortable with. Most people are disc brakes now, which I think is going to help a lot on this course. Um, so that's a good thing. Really, really need to also think about how you're going to carry your drink bottles and your nutrition, because, you know, typically what you, what might work for you on a flat to rolling type course will be different on a climbing type course. Now, it, it might not change at all, but, you know, a lot of times those arrow drink bottle holders in the front can feel pretty strange when you're climbing and specifically when you're descending, it can change the handling of your bike. If you've got those big aero drink um, bottles on the front. Now, if you're on a rolling or flat course, that's a perfect place for it because you can, you know, just dip down and, and drink your fluids. Right. And it's there and there's not a lot of handling skills. It's just a straight line. But when you're descending and you've got, you know, liter of water in between your handlebars, that changes the way your bike feels and how fast you can descend on it. So you might look at having something like two bottles on your frame and one behind the seat or something like that, that, that allows you, you know, try it out. How does it feel on a descent? How does it feel when I'm climbing as far as, and, and how easily can I get to it? You know, can I reach down and, and get it? Okay. Can I reach behind me while I'm climbing? Okay. And get that nutrition, get those drinks. So I think, you know, wheel choice, gear choice, 
your nutrition placement choice. These are all going to be important decisions on this course as right down to the type of helmet you use, you know, and a flat to rolling course, a really aero helmet is going to be quite important. I think you have to ask yourself, how much would you overheat climbing hard on a course like this in an aero helmet versus how much time are you actually gaining by wearing an aero helmet on the flat? So those are other things to consider on a course like this with your equipment choices. So a little bit more thought into your, um, the thought, the thought patterns on the equipment that you're going to use in this course should be different than how arrow am I, you know, which is typically what people go into Ironmans with is like, how arrow am I? Well, there, I think there's a lot more to think about on this course with that. Yeah. And I want to, I want to talk about the fueling a little bit more because I think that's a really good point. And yeah, number one, when you have those big air drinks in the front, it is kind of like steering a Mack truck up there. Right. And, uh, and when you take that off, it is kind of crazy. Like, you know, the tri bikes these days are pretty, like pretty nimble. It's not, not like they used to be. So, um, but, but I think that the fueling on this course is going to be very different for a lot of reasons. And, and one is, yeah, if you have a straw, it's going to be harder to get to, but two is the timing, which you're able to eat and drink is going to be different because of the course. So if you're climbing hard for an hour, for some people, maybe 90 minutes, uh, and maybe even longer than that. But so that's, that's going to be a time where you're probably going to be slightly above what you would like to be for an Ironman, just to keep a good cadence, like depending on your gearing that you have, but you're probably going to be slightly above power. And it's going to be hard to take in a ton of nutrition for that, you know, hour to 90 minutes of climbing. And then you've got like a, you know, false flat, flat section along the top. And then you've got a big descent again, where, I mean, it's kind of like there's some, some whoopties on the way down, but like, so there's two chunks in there, the climb and the descent where it's going to be pretty hard to take in nutrition, like, especially at the rate that you're used to. Right. So if you're like, Hey, I'm just going to set a timer every 15 minutes and take in X amount of calories that might not work on this course. So that's something I would really think about ahead of time and look at the profile, maybe put it into best bike split and look at how much time you're going to spend in places and really think about like, Hey, when can I eat? And maybe you need to practice like, Hey, well, what if I eat a few more calories before the climb and then have to only like do liquid calories in the climb? Maybe it works out to a little bit less calories, but I can take in a little more hydration. I get back to that kind of flattish section on the top and maybe there I can eat a little bit more because you know, you're going to have to descend for a while. And I mean, eating on the horns or eating in the bars when you're going downhill, is going to be hard for, for anyone. Um, and, and so, yeah, I would really like look at the course and then plan how that's going to change your nutrition strategy and then actually practice that. Cause you'd be like, Hey, I'll just double my nutrition for that middle hour when I'm on the flat in the top, like, Hey, maybe that'll work, but maybe you'll end up totally bloated and have the DNF. So like, you know, practice, an alternate strategy for like kind of the amount you're eating and when you're eating that, because it's not going to be, you know, uh, an Ironman Arizona where you can have a beeper go off every 15 and, and do a gel. Um, and I think that, yeah, I think that also plays into the strategy on pacing too, right? I mean, if you're going to be yeah. descending where you're not pedaling for a long period of time, your pacing strategy up those climbs might be different than your typical, Ironman. So if you're looking to be really competitive in this course, well, one, you've got to, you got to make sure that your descending skills are up to snuff. And if you're not familiar with those descents, it's a good idea to get there early enough to go and take a look at them so that you know what you're, what you're up for in terms of the corners and how narrow they are and, and all of those things and be prepared to be around other people when you're descending. So your equipment, make sure you're comfortable on it, make sure your descending skills, take a look at them, those kinds of things. But obviously if you're descending really hard and it's uh, windy descents, you're not putting out a lot of heart rate, energy, and power through that time. It's a skill, right? Right. So if you know, you know that it might change your strategy in terms of how hard you would climb and that could be different than your typical Ironman effort, right? Like if you're normally, you sit at the top of, let's, let's say you use five zones, zone two is fairly aerobic. And you say, well, normally for an Ironman, I sit at the top of zone two pretty much all day. Well, if you're climbing and then flat and then descending for 90 minutes or two hours, that, that pacing strategy is probably going to look a lot different based on where can I make up the most amount of time. Where is my fitness? Where is my skills? Those kind of things. 
Yeah, exactly. And I think that the, the thing is, is that people should think about that now and start trading that way, right? Like yeah. if you want to climb for an hour and, and let's say you're like, oh, I can ride mid zone three for this climb and then go back to top of zone two for the top because then I can recover on the descent. And like, yeah, I think that's a, that's a great plan. And, and that should, you know, but I think the thing is, is that you can't train to ride in zone two all day and then change your strategy on race day, which is kind of why we're doing this podcast now, right? It's like, you still got time to kind of change your training for the course. And I think it's going to be important. Um, just like you said, like, I think you're probably gonna have to climb a little bit harder. So I think you should practice that practice. Uh, hope, I mean, if you have to do it inside or whatever, but practice doing a sustained climb and then rolling straight into zone two for a while after that, because I think that's, that's actually pretty hard. Like if you've ever done like a hard start interval or like a, a group ride where you kind of start hard and then kind of have to settle in, like, I think that's a harder thing than most people think it is. So I think that's a, a really good thing that you can start implementing now in your training is to like, you know, mimic that whatever it is, two hours to three hours of the course in the middle. Um, and then know that you'll have that, that recovery time to, I'm not going to say just recover on the descent because I think for most people, especially again, in America who descend on wide straight roads, I mean, this is the cognitive load on descending is going to be pretty high. Um, even if, even if you're a good descender, I think it's still going to take a lot of thought. Um, but, but like you said, you're not pedaling. So your heart rate's going to be low and, um, and yeah, your output is going to be really low. It'd be easy to get behind on nutrition and hydration on the descent too, if you don't have good skills, right? Because if you're just hanging on for dear life to get down that, you could go for a very long time without taking a, a drink of hydration or putting any calories in, which could catch up with you on the run in, a, in any Ironman. So that's the other thing is make sure that you are prepared to descend well enough and your equipment is set up in a way that you're able to descend well and still be able to grab a bottle, grab nutrition, do what you need to do to set your marathon up because it doesn't just end with the bike ride. So if you spend the whole back half of the course not hydrating and not fueling, we all know you can't just make that up on the marathon without running into GI distress. So you, you want to also know that you, whatever equipment you use and whatever descending that you practice and prepare for, that you have the ability to do that. Yeah, no, I 100% agree. And I think one thing people can do too is, you know, again, try this in training, but if you can stomach like a little bit more at once, then maybe before you hit that descent, you can like, uh, you know, jam on a Snickers bar or chug a bottle or something. And then you have some descending time where that can like, where that can settle in. Whereas maybe in a normal Ironman, you know, you can't eat that much food at once because you're on the pedals the whole time. Well, you have some time where your heart rate is lower and your blood isn't all going to your quads. You can use some of that for digestion. Um, but you need to practice that and make sure that like you can actually do that. And, um, and you, you need to have your equipment on your bike set up so that when you get there, you're like, okay, I'm going to eat my power bar now. I'm going to drink a bottle. I'm going to do this descent and it's all going to settle. Um, but even, even so though, I, um, to back up your point, yeah, you need to be able to eat and drink because if you spend an hour not doing that, then yeah, like, uh, you know, that <laughs> marathon is hard enough. You don't need to make it harder by, uh, by going in depleted in any regard. Exactly. You know, it's, re it's really cool too, is when you get into town, that's, uh, it's a little ways in, on the flat there headed into transition. But the nice thing is, is that whole run course is right in town along the beach you run basically from memory run basically out to the airport and back into town and it's this you know a little tiny it's like a, a, a tiny hump in the middle it's like it doesn't look like it the course looks dead flat but it's not there's like a very very slight like all the way to the center of the course there's a little bit of a you know incline and then a little bit of a decline and you turn around to the airport and come back and you run right along the water there and the city is right there. So it's really cool. It's usually, you know, it'd be filled with crowds, not only of spectators for Ironman, but uh, people just visiting the city of Nice, which is, which is really cool. Oh, this, uh, the Germans, Jesse, call it Nizza. Nizza, <laughs> <laughs> oh. not Nice. Um, but uh, they, you know, and, and so it can be a really exciting run course and, but it's a little bit more false, like a very tiny false flat up and down on both both returns and leaves on that one. 
Um, yeah, which can be good to kind of mix up the cadence a little bit. I think dead, dead flat courses are hard for me. So I would look at that as a good thing. Um, and, and yeah, I, I, I've heard the crowd support there is amazing, which is awesome. But I do think you need to be careful going out for that first 10 K of just being like, Oh, this is exciting going too fast. Um, but, but yeah, I, other than that though, I do think the run is, um, is a little more straightforward than the rest of the course. Um, would you say? Yeah, I would say, you know, the one piece about the run is because it's along the water there, it, it can, you know, you get a little breeze off the water, but it can get kind of warm. And the one thing that I did every single lap is along the airport is the one place if you get out that, if it, if it is out that far, you can, there's a fence there. At least there was, I, I assume it's still there because it's an airport. There's a fence along there that provides just a little bit of shade for like a couple of miles. And I would run instead of out in, in on the road, right along that fence. And that provided a couple of miles where the sun wasn't just like beating right down on your head. And, and it made a difference. I mean, you're out there for a whole marathon. If you can sneak in some shade just a little bit um, here and there, it can make a difference on, on how you feel as you're coming back, especially on the, on the last stretch home when you're starting to get pretty tired. Yeah, I mean, if Tucson has taught us anything, it's that the sun is hot. Right? We hide every little <laughs> shitty spot. You know where it is. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I remember standing at red lights waiting to cross on the run, trying to like hide behind a, a lamppost or something and making them think it's skinny thoughts. Like, just get out of the sun for a second. Um, no, yeah. I, <laughs> I think that's good advice. I think shade is definitely a friend. Yeah, um, yeah it's, a, it's a really straightforward, nice run course. So, you know, by the time you come back down the hill, and, you know, make sure you turn your legs over a little bit on the bike as you come through town and, and get prepared for your running legs and you hit that run and it's, it's exciting. It's beautiful. It's along the, along the water and, um, you know, look for those little pieces of shade. What, what's nice is you can take pretty good splits for yourself along the way or have people call out splits. It's that kind of course. I remember that more than any other course I ever did, you could very, you know, very accurately go like a 5K split, a 10K split, a turnaround split, a one lap split, and do that all the way and run pretty evenly because of the nature of this course, which so many courses now there's, you know, you run down this aisle, run up this little hill, go on this bike path, do a quick U-turn here, and it's harder to get those kinds of splits. This is the type of course where you can get into a good rhythm if you're a rhythm runner and take those very um you know accurate splits at each point and make judgment on how your pacing is going or where you might need to like really buckle down and dig in and hold on to your pace later on in the course when there might be that tendency to slow down a bit you've got those splits and you can say like i i can i can settle into rhythm and hang on to that because there isn't a lot of like bike path turn windy you know having to cut tangents on corners or anything like that it's just like Hit that rhythm, find your rhythm, take your splits and and try and be as consistent as possible and, and bring it home strong. I think it's a great course for that. So if you're if you're gonna practice um, for this type of run course, that would be my biggest piece of advice is is find your rhythm. You know, find your rhythm running and get used to taking splits, 5K splits, 10K splits, every two two kilometers. And remember, you're in Europe. So things, if you're coming from North America, things are gonna be probably marked in kilometers over there and not in miles it's a world championship. So they might have both, but you know, the world championships have always been in Kona, which is, um, you know, in the U S so everything's in miles, but here there might be, I, I'm not sure, you know, off the top of my head, but I imagine that they're going to have both there. So be prepared for that. Um, yeah. And I've had you for a long time here. So one thing I do want to move on to before we wrap this up is, um, is again, focusing on what people can, can do now to get ready. And I've made this mistake countless times as an athlete and even a few times as a coach. Um, and, and that is not respecting the flight and the time zones for getting to a race like this. And, and so, yeah, I, I think that, I, I don't know if you came from America when you went there, but, but I know that anytime I've done international travel and had my athletes doing it, or say even athletes going to Finland, um, 
I think it's important to to almost shift your schedule a little bit earlier than you would to finish that bill just a little bit earlier so that you're a little bit fresher for that travel. And, you know, it kind of depends on how everyone's structuring their travel, but, but, you know, I would, I would say that like, you know, one of the biggest mistakes I made when I first started um, self-coaching is like, Oh, it's travel day. It's a rest day. And so I'd like train hard all the way up to it and be like, Oh yeah, I just get to chill out for like 18 hours as I fly to Nice and this will be totally fine. And then I get there totally effed and like didn't sleep on the flight was like shelled from training going in and then i was like oh i'm racing in three days and like i can't get on the time zone and um and then if you have any stress like oh i can't find my bike didn't make it and i've got these other things to deal with um so so yeah i think it's really important to kind of respect that travel and respect the stress you're going to have when you're trying to figure everything out in another country where I know Kona is like, you know, it's an island, so things are a little bit different. But like when you get off a plane and everyone is speaking French, or in my case, everyone's speaking German, it's just, you know, it, it's another layer of stress that makes everything a bit harder. Um, so, so yeah, I, I, my, big, my big heads up for that would be to like finish your training a little bit earlier than you're used to and almost like taper into the flight. And I saw you shaking your head. So uh, I don't know if it was like, in disappointment at me for making that mistake or, or in agreement. But, uh, no, total agreeance. I think that's, you know, it's a big thing is I, I did used to come from the U S I usually trained in, um, Boulder and flew over or Flagstaff and flew over for Ironman France. And, um, it is, you do, you need to respect that it's, and it's exactly a flip-flop as far as, uh, sleeping and timing, like you're, you know, changing your routine as far as when you go to bed, when you wake up, waking up in the middle of the night, um, when you go to the bathroom, all of those things, it's going to take some adjustments. So going, going in hydrated and rested, uh, into the travel, I think is, is great advice. Also, when you get on the other end, take it easy for the first 24 to 48 hours, don't hop off the plane and start drilling it right away. You've, you know, you've probably tightened up a little bit on that long haul flight. You're likely a little bit dehydrated. Um, so, you know, take some time to just loosen up, get rehydrated, get your, you know, get onto the time schedule as quick as possible. And that includes eating, going to the bathroom, fight, you know, fight taking naps or anything like that. Just get Put, make yourself go to bed at the time that you you should and wake up at the time that you should and start to get everything on track as quick as possible. And then once you've sort of settled in for 24, 48 hours, then start to do some light training towards your race. The other thing is, is when you travel like that, to um, in particular to France is not, and if you're coming from the US and haven't been there, not everything's open all the time. It's not open seven days a week, you know, till 11 p.m. at night, 24 hours. Their store hours as far as getting food and what you might need is significantly different than it is in North America. The, things close four or five o'clock and typically things are closed in the, uh, for a little break in the afternoon as well. So, and maybe not, so let's say from what I remember, things open up at like 9 a.m. They're open till about one or two, then they open back up maybe at three and they're only open till about five and then, and things are closed. They are not typically open on Sundays either. So if you're flying in on a Sunday and the reason I'm mentioning this is I've been caught before landing and, and hungry and have no snacks or food and nothing's open and you can't go to the store and get anything. And so now you're stuck for, you know, 24 hours, or if you flew in on a Sunday, quite a while, really, really searching. Nice is a pretty big city, so you might not have that extreme uh, trouble, but, um, you know, just be prepared that look at your flight itinerary and understand that you're flying into a different culture and country and things might not be exactly the same as you're used to. So go prepared with the things that you need when you land. Um, so yeah, really important to pay attention to those details for sure. Yeah, I definitely noticed that once I got here where the, the Sunday thing and the siesta break is a, is a real thing. And, uh, and yeah, it's definitely, uh, uh, left me high and dry on a few rides. Uh, so that's, I think that's really good advice. And, you know, usually you can find like a kiosk or something that might be open, but if you're, you know, six days out from your race, you don't want to be putting together your dinner with like six snicker bars and like, you know, two cans of Coke. Cause that's all you can get. So, <laughs> so yeah, I think it, it's good to plan ahead. And, you know, like that's a great thing now is like all this stuff is available on the interweb. So if people like you, know, you can investigate that, find out, what stores are near you, their hours, and and really help kind of 
get a dialed in approach. Like, and it might be more research than you're, than you're used to. You might be like, oh yeah, like my hotel is here. There's going to be restaurants and everything nearby. Like it might not be that straightforward based on when you're traveling. So I would definitely, definitely check that out. And then you can plan accordingly, right? If you need to throw in a few extra bottles of water, a few extra snacks in your luggage, you can do that so that you show up um, ready to go. Totally. Cool stuff. Well, it'll be exciting. I know that, are you actually traveling to the race yourself being close, you know, being in Europe or are you staying put at home? Um, so that is, uh, I'm, I'm working on that right now. Amy is actually racing the same day. Oh, wow. And uh, obviously not there. And although it's close, it's also like pretty far, far away for me to get to you from here. Uh, right. I think it's like eight, eight hours on the train. Um, so trying to figure that out, if, if we can find a, um, a, a sitter for Frankie so that Amy can race and she's doing a, a pretty extreme, extremely hilly marathon. So it's not exactly just a little, little 10 K. Um, and then if I can make it work to get there, cause you know, I have some athletes racing, I'd love to go. Um, but it is, you know, eight hours on a train is still a long time. Anyway, you slice it. Um, yeah, totally. and I'm racing the next weekend. But, you know, I'd love to get out there and, and see some of my guys racing and, and watch the race in general. So um, I'm working on trying to find a way to make that work. But, um, but you know, t- kids can't watch themselves. It's really annoying. I, I, keep, I think I keep think you to... run into trouble with the law if you just leave them in like a kennel or something like that for the day, like with a dog. I think I don't think that's allowed. So. I'm not a parent, yeah, so. I... <laughs> but I'm pretty and, sure you're and... not allowed to do that. <laughs> And like the Swiss people seem to be very rule abiding and don't really like it when you break rules. There's uh they're pretty serious about that here. So I don't really want to like find out the hard way what happens, um, exactly. but I don't think it would be good. Exactly. Well, great conversation, Jesse. I appreciate it. I'm definitely, I think, you know, a lot of athletes are going to pull for, pull for, pull from this podcast for some good advice. And uh, that was hard for me to get out. I couldn't say that. But, um, <laughs> yeah. I think it's, you know, if, if you're getting ready for this race, you know, pay attention to these details. You can make some tweaks to your training, maybe even your equipment and set yourself up well for the race. Awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you for spending the hour with me. Cheers.